Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up our series on hatred through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And today's teaching is entitled, A Series on Hatred, Nehemiah 13. Over the past two months, we have been looking at hatred. And the reason for this is because there is an overwhelming amount of hatred from Christians in America today. Christians are known for their hatred of political parties or immigrants or certain stances. And so we've been looking at this concept and idea of hatred because we believe at Paradox that anytime a human being hates another human being, that in fact is a sin. And so we're looking at hatred in order to understand why we hate other human beings so that we can eventually avoid this temptation to hate and become known for who and what we love. So that is why we are looking at hatred, and today we are looking at one of the most hate-filled chapters in all of Scripture, Nehemiah 13. Now, Nehemiah 13 references two other passages of Scripture. And if you don't understand what is happening in those two passages of Scripture, you can miss the entire point of Nehemiah 13. So this podcast today is a journey through scripture. Now, the Bible means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And for the sake of simplicity, I want to give you my definition of what the Bible is so you can understand what conclusions I will draw as we talk about these stories. So my definition for the Bible is the Bible is 100% accurate in the way a people group perceived and understood God throughout multiple generations. Now, this Bible is a collection of those perceptions, and the people who wrote it absolutely believed that this is who God was. I personally have found this definition to be very helpful. So that's the definition we'll use as we look at these two other passages before Nehemiah 13. The first of which is Deuteronomy 7. Now to understand Deuteronomy, you have to go back to Exodus and Exodus unfolds with the Israelites being enslaved by the Egyptians sometime around 1900 BCE. For 10 generations, the Israelites cry out to God for their liberation. God hears their prayers and God sends a servant, a man named Moses, to liberate them. And with a mighty and miraculous hand, God liberates them and leads them into the wilderness. Now, God did not lead the Israelites into the wilderness to die in the wilderness. Instead, God promises them land and God inspires the servant Moses to talk about this land with the people of Israel, specifically in Deuteronomy 7. We read these words from Moses to the children of Israel about the promised land in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. 
Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles and burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So Moses tells the children of Israel these words, for you are a people holy to the Lord. Now, while that claim may sound good to the people of Israel, there is a stunning implication within these words. Because when you say you are a people holy to the Lord, the natural conclusion is, therefore, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites are not holy to the Lord. So the holiness of Israel is dependent upon their being non-holy people, which raises the question, why would Moses declare that people of other races' religions are unholy? Well, the answer to that question is that God is supposedly leading the Israelites into the promised land. There's just one problem. There's other people currently living in the promised land. Namely, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And after Moses dies, which occurs at the end of Deuteronomy, a man named Joshua picks up his sword and leads the Israelites into Canaan, which is occupied by other people. So while some read the book of Joshua as God keeping God's promises, what most people read when they read the book of Joshua is Joshua leading an unprovoked military conquest against people who are already living in the land of Canaan. Now this raises an important theological question. Why doesn't God promise land to the Israelites that is unoccupied? Because if God is truly the author and creator of all and God values the Jebusites as much as the Israelites, then God would lead the Israelites into unoccupied land. Instead, the story is Joshua and Moses tell the Israelites, you are holier than everybody else. Therefore, it's okay for us to kill all those other people and their children. I point all of this out because we are about to read Deuteronomy 7 again in another part of the Bible, and the lasting theology of Deuteronomy 7 is that we are holier than them. Now, this passage is referenced in 1 Kings 11. The story that takes place in 1 Kings 11 is nearly 500 years after the life and story of Moses. Now, the story of 1 Kings 11 revolves around Solomon, who is David's son, being on the throne. Solomon, we have read in previous chapters, has led Israel into a golden age of unrivaled wealth, prosperity, and power. But toward the end of Solomon's reign, we read about a rather disturbing practice of Solomon. Verse 1 reads, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither they shall they with you, for they will surely incline your heart to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. Verse 3, among Solomon's wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not completely follow the Lord as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chamosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who offered incense and sacrificed to their gods. Then, in verse 9, we read, Then the Lord was angry with Solomon. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you say, Yes, finally, God is going to show up See Solomon with 1,000 female sex slaves and say, Solomon, these women are crafted in my image and they are valuable. Because you view these women as lowly beings, you no longer are fit to reign until you can validate the divine within the feminine. But that's not how the story goes. God is angry with Solomon but for different reasons entirely. We read in verse 9, Then the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And when I read this, I think to myself, No. I'm discouraged by these words because when we keep reading, God is concerned about something else. We read, The God of Israel, who had appeared to Solomon twice and had commanded him concerning this matter, that he should not follow other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord commanded. This story is hard to read because in this story, God is more concerned with the state of one man's heart than the entire combined existence and well-being of 1,000 female sex slaves. It's difficult for me to read because God seems so indifferent to their suffering and is much more concerned with one man's utter devotion to God. Why is the story written this way? Why is God so much angrier about Solomon's heart than all of the sex slavery and the harem that Solomon participates in and oppresses others with? Well, when you keep reading, there is a big tell as to why the story was written this way. Verse 12 reads, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your mind, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will not, however, tear away the entire kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, in the next chapter, Solomon dies 
and his son Rehoboam takes the throne. Now Rehoboam is deciding what kind of king he will be when the Israelites approach him and beg him to be a different king than his father. When you look closely at the words, it becomes apparent that the Israelites hated Solomon because while Solomon made them richer than everyone else, he did it at the expense of his own people. So the Israelites approach Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they say to him, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam says, Nah, I'm not going to do that. And the people are so angry, they split the nation into two, with the majority crowning a new king named Jeroboam, and a small minority staying with Solomon's son named Rehoboam. In other words, history unfolds the exact way that God predicts it. Which raises the theological question, why did God allow this schism between the nation to happen? Because the Israelites believe that God is more powerful than all the other gods. Therefore, their nation that follows the true God should be more powerful than all the other nations. And this schism weakens the prospect of them becoming powerful as they follow the most powerful God. The reason why history is written this way and why God supposedly allowed this schism to happen is because we have a big misunderstanding about the Bible. We read the Bible from left to right and we assume that the events unfolded that way and were recorded that way. So we read from Genesis, then to Exodus, then Leviticus, all the way down to 1 Kings. And while we should read the Bible that way, because that's the way it was intended to be written, what most people don't understand is the Bible was written in a very different way. Because about 500 years after this story unfolded, when Israel, specifically Judah, is at its weakest in exile, it's here around the 6th century BCE that they start putting the Bible together and they ask questions like, what went wrong? We're no longer in power. We are ruined. Why did God allow that schism to happen 500 years ago? So while they are in exile, 500 years later, they're looking back at the schism that happened during Rehoboam's reign and they say, oh, I think I know. Solomon married foreign wives, and Moses said that we can't do that because we are holier than them. And because of that, the way they perceived and understood God, they then wrote history to match their current reality and theology. God allowed this schism to happen because Solomon was not as devoted to God as Solomon should have been. So the whole reason the schism happens is because Solomon marries foreign wives. Now, why did the people writing this history of 1 Kings point to foreign wives as the problem? I think there are two reasons. The first is that men love to blame their problems on women. This is well documented throughout human history. The second reason is that nations love to blame their problems on foreigners. So this intersectionality of hatred is why foreign women are blamed for the schism of Israel. So you can see how men writing history wouldn't empathize with the sex slaves of Solomon. 
Now, an important question to ask is how would this story, how would the history, how would the very interaction with God be different if foreign women wrote the story about Solomon? And because I believe that the Bible is 100% accurate in the way a people group perceived and understood God throughout multiple generations, I believe that if foreign women were able to write the history of Solomon's reign, they would have God confronting Solomon for his sex trafficking in this story. But because men wrote it, men wrote about how God cares more about men than women. Not only that, but foreign women in interracial marriage is the problem. And this concept of interracial marriage being the problem is a lasting theology that shows up again in Nehemiah 13. The lasting theology of 1 Kings 11 is that unholy people are distractions in your spiritual quest for utter devotion to God. They aren't worth wasting your time on, and therefore you should only have friends and family members and marry people who are on the same spiritual page as you. That theology lasts for 500 more years, all the way to the time of Nehemiah in chapter 13. Now, a bit of context before we dive into Nehemiah 13. In 586 BCE, Babylon attacks Judah, defeats Judah, and forces them not to live in Jerusalem, but drags them back across the desert and forces them to live in Babylon. This goes on for 47 years until Persia shows up and defeats Babylon. Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, looks around and says, who are you guys? And they say, we're from Judah. And he says, you are free to go home as long as you pay your taxes. People of Judah are elated. They return to Jerusalem to a devastated city and they begin to rebuild. About 80 years after they return, a man named Nehemiah shows up and he rebuilds a wall around Jerusalem. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the big key story development of Nehemiah is the fact that the wall around Jerusalem makes the people of Jerusalem suspicious about the people of Jerusalem. And so while the wall was promised to bring security and safety to the people of Jerusalem, it just made them more anxious and suspicious of each other than it did provide the safety that it promised. So this suspicion that is a direct result of the wall causes the people of Jerusalem to look inward and say, who are the real citizens of Jerusalem who belong here? So Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the high priest set up all sorts of rules and regulations to discern who is a real citizen of Jerusalem and who is not. And after all kinds of separation, one of the crowning achievements of Nehemiah, according to Nehemiah, occurs in verse 1 of Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah writes, On that day the book of Moses, a.k.a. Deuteronomy chapter 7, was read aloud in the hearing of the people. They found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of God. When they heard the law, they removed from Israel all who were of mixed ancestry. So for Nehemiah, any child who was not of pure Jewish descent was kicked out of Jerusalem. This story is very difficult for me to read. And the reason for this is because I have married a Filipino-American. And my kids have mixed ancestry. 
So when I read this story and I put it in the context of America today, it's almost like a politician coming along and saying every kid of mixed ancestry must be deported. So if this story happened today, the government would step in and remove my kids from my household and deport them, supposedly, to the Philippines. Nehemiah is a racist. Now, Nehemiah never stops to question my ancestry because of my white skin. But the fact is, I am just as mixed with ancestry as my kids. I have relatives who are from Sweden from Germany, and from Britain. My heritage is just as mixed as my children's. All of us have mixed ancestry. But Nehemiah uses his power to define what mixed ancestry is and then weaponizes that based on the kids' and children's color of their own skin. What we need to be honest about here with the story of Nehemiah is Nehemiah is guilty of the sin of ethnic cleansing. I don't throw those words around lightly. And the reason I use these words is because when you look up the dictionary definition of ethnic cleansing, the new Oxford American Dictionary says the mass expulsion or killing of members of an unwanted ethnic or religious group in society. So Nehemiah's wall leads directly to ethnic cleansing. And the worst part of this story is the fact that I know several Christians who hold up Nehemiah as a hero of the faith simply because he built a wall very quickly. Now, as the story goes on, it gets worse because Nehemiah then goes back to Persia for an unidentified amount of time and then returns to Jerusalem, and he is furious because people have started to intermarry with different religions and races once again. Verse 23 to 24 captures his feelings when he says, In those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke the language of various peoples. So then Nehemiah writes in verse 25, I contended with them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah is driven to racially motivated brutality. He then writes, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He then quotes 1 Kings 11 by saying, did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah then wraps up his book with these words in verses 30 to 31. The last words in Nehemiah are, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. And I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And the book of Nehemiah comes to an end. 
Nehemiah uses Deuteronomy 7 and 1 Kings 11 to justify this ethnic cleansing as a mission from God. Think about that for a moment. And if you were to live in Nehemiah's day and confront him about this ethnic cleansing, he would point to the Bible and say, see, the Bible says ethnic cleansing is always good. Foreign women will do nothing but lead our hearts away from God. Therefore, Nehemiah would say, we must cleanse ourselves from these foreign women and their children in order to devote our hearts to God. I tell you all of this because the lasting theology of Nehemiah 13 is the Bible is always, 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 always right. And because there was that theology in Nehemiah's place, he pointed to the other passages of Scripture and said, we are right to view foreign women as subhuman and cleanse ourselves from them. So from Moses to Solomon to Nehemiah, I would say that all three of these men fell to the temptation to hate other human beings, specifically foreign women. And what's frightening about these three individuals is they are held up as heroes of the faith by Christians in America today. And when I look at all of the reasons why Christians in America are so filled with hatred today, I think a big part of it is the fact that we don't talk about the acts of hatred of Moses and Solomon and Nehemiah. When we try and speak about these people in negative terms, there is this instant reaction of defensiveness from Christians because they say, no, 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 you can't tell me that Moses did something wrong because Moses was the law. You can't tell me that Solomon held hatred in his heart and bigotry in his heart because Solomon was wiser than anyone who has ever lived. Don't tell me that Nehemiah held hatred and used his wall for evil purposes because the people out there are evil because they don't have God. We need to find a way to be more honest about the people in the Bible and their flaws and their acts of hatred. I say this for a very specific reason. There's an author who wrote a book not too long ago called Being Wrong, and the author's name is Katherine Schultz. For five years, she studied what makes human beings so agitated when they are wrong and why it's important for us to learn how to be wrong in order to be better people. The conclusion of her book reads this. If you really want to be right, or at least improve the odds of being right, you have to start by acknowledging your fallibility, deliberately seeking out your mistakes and figuring out what caused you to make them. And when we apply that to the hatred that Christians have in America today, the only way for Christians in America to become less hateful is for us to acknowledge how some of our theology that we hold dear leads us to hate. So when we consider the lasting theology of Moses, Solomon, and Nehemiah, we have to be able to talk about how those theologies are actually toxic 
and how these theologies ultimately lead us to hate other human beings. Let's look specifically at the lasting theology of Moses. The lasting theology of Deuteronomy 7 is that we are holier than them. Do you see this theology still with us today? I see it all around when I work in the church. Christians have this sense that they are holier, more valuable in God's eyes because we have the truth. But where did that lead Moses and Joshua and eventually Solomon? It led them to hate the foreigner. It led them to hate people who believed differently than them. Anytime Christians believe that their beliefs make them more valuable than an unbeliever, we are participating in this lasting theology. And that belief will always lead to hatred because it views another as less valuable, less worthy to be saved, less holy than the person who has the proper beliefs. To my Christian brothers and sisters listening to this podcast, we have this idea that we are holier than them. And the story of Nehemiah 13 should encourage us to discard this theology. The message of Jesus is one where every human being, regardless of religious belief, regardless of religious practice, regardless of behavior, is holy. Every human being is holy and valuable in God's eyes. Which brings us to the lasting theology of 1 Kings 11, which is that unholy people are distractions in your spiritual quest for utter devotion to God. Do you see this theology still with us today? The way I see this theology play out is that Christians feel that it is better to hunker down and be friends with people who believe the exact same things as them rather than risk a relationship with someone who is opposed to them or believe something different. And the whole reason for that is because there is this sense that they may influence you more than you influence them, so it's better to build up a wall between you and them so that you can remain utterly devoted to God. In most Christians' mind, your utter devotion to God is the most important thing. This theology will always lead us to hate another. The reason for this is you start to view people who are outside of your tribe with suspicion and fear and anxiety. And the moment that someone stands up and speaks different beliefs than you possess is the moment that you begin to get defensive and plug your ears and say, I can't trust you. Don't tarnish my devotion to God. My brothers and sisters, we have to discard this theology. This idea that unholy people are distractions in our spiritual quests for devotion to God. When we consider the life of Jesus, we notice that Jesus did not put up walls between him and the, quotes unholy people. Instead, Jesus was found among the unholy all the time. And people said, don't spend time with them. They're going to ruin your devotion to God. And the paradox of the life of Jesus is that God is exactly where people told Jesus God could not be. So we must get rid of this theology that people outside of our tribe are distractions and instead start to see how God is among them. Which brings us to Nehemiah 
and the lasting theology of chapter 13. This theology is that the Bible is always, 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 always right. Do you still see this theology with us today? I have to tell you that I see it all around me. And when people take this theology and apply it to their life, what happens is they end up hating every queer person they meet. They end up believing that interracial marriage is wrong. They end up believing that women are subservient to men because they'll quote a verse and they say, see, it says it here, and the Bible is always right. So who are you to question the word of God? The reason why it's important for us to study Nehemiah 13 is because we see how someone takes two stories of scripture and uses it to justify ethnic cleansing. Not only justify, but to talk about how God is on Nehemiah's side to enact this ethnic cleansing. My brothers and sisters, we must get rid of this theology. We must discard the idea that the Bible is always, 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 always right. This theology may seem harmless, but I am telling you, I have seen this theology used as a weapon over and over and over again in Christianity. We Christians are more concerned with preserving the rightness of the Bible than we are in learning how to love those who are different than us. Think about that for a moment. We would rather have the Bible be correct than have the Bible teach us something. We need to get rid of this idea that the Bible is always right. And when we look at these three lasting theologies and the stories of hatred found in Deuteronomy and 1 Kings 11 and Nehemiah 13, we have to be honest about Christianity in America today. The only way for Christians in America to become less hateful is for us to acknowledge how some of our theology leads us to hate. These three ideas that we are holier than them, that people outside of our tribe are mere distractions in our quest for devotion to God, and that the Bible is always right, must be discarded in order for us to love. My brothers and sisters, may we have the courage to discard our hatred, and may we have the courage to embrace love. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.